Hello and welcome to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. This is going to be our second official episode into poisons. This has to be one of my favourite poisons as well. It's a really strange thing saying it's one of my favourite poisons. But it's steeped in history. And the true crime story that actually goes along with this poison... Um, it's one of the ones which I think has stuck out to me and is possibly shows how women do actually use poisons and how they are characteristically seen to be using poisons as well. I will be covering aconite today and I hope with the research that I've done that you enjoy this episode too. The Better Homes and Gardens website asks, how can you not fall in love with a perennial that has regal blue spires? Indeed, monk's hood is quite an attractive plant with tall spikes of hooded purple or blue blooms that flower in late summer to autumn. And its name comes from the observation that the flowers look rather like the cows worn by medieval monks. However, as any diehard Harry Potter fan will know, Monk's Hood is not the only name which the plant is known by. Throughout history, it has garnered rather more sinister appellations, including Wolfsbane, Leopardsbane and Devil's Helmet. The word bane means poison and refers to the use of the plant as an arrow poison for hunting wolves and other dangerous carnivores. Not only is monk's hood or wolfsbane dangerous to wolves, it is also quite deadly for humans, appropriately earning the monkeyer queen of poisons. The word aconitum may come from the Greek word akavo, meaning sharp dart or javelin, the tips of which were correlated or coated with poison or from aconite because of the rocky ground on which the plant was thought to grow. In the Iliad, written in 1762 BC, Homer describes Hercules' test to capture Cerberus, the monstrous three-headed dog from the underworld, and bring it up to the world of the living. Another throw to Harry Potter and Fluffy. As Hercules subdued the horrific beast, the noxious drool from its three snarling snouts fell upon the ground, and immediately poisonous aconite plants sprang up. The genus Aconitium, or aconite, comprises more than 200 species of flowering plants that grow in damp and partially shaded areas of Europe, Asia and North America. All of these plants contain the alkaloid, aconitine, which like any other plant, alkaloids, are not necessary for the plant's growth, but act as a deterrent system for the plant being eaten. Most of the acetine is found in the roots of the plants, but all parts of the plant can be deadly if eaten. Accidental ingestion of the roots actually turns out to be far more common than would be expected, 
since they are often mistaken for horseradish. In 1856, a dinner party was held in Dingwall, a Scottish village 30 miles north of the famed Loch Ness. A servant had been sent into the back garden to dig up some horseradish to make a sauce for the roast beef dinner. Instead, the unwitting servant dug up some aconite, and the cook, unaware of the difference, blithely grated the aconite root into the sauce. The poisoned dinner promptly killed two priests who were guests at the party. Other guests who ate less were sickened but survived. An October 1882 issue of the British Medical Journal contained a bizarre article reporting on a man who saw something drop from a passing van and thinking it was a horseradish, not only ate some, but gave a piece each to three other men and his sister. Within a very short time, all five were in the hospital complaining of a numb sensation in the mouth with partial paralysis of their arms and legs. Artificial respiration was maintained for four hours before the symptoms gradually wore off and the patients recovered. The supposed horseradish, as you have guessed, was found to be aconite root. Aconite plants have been used for centuries in herbal medicines as for treatment for gout, probably due to the pain-relieving local anaesthetic properties of its extracts. In the 19th century, ointments and liniments made from aconite were used by physicians for all kinds of ailments, including rheumatism, neuralgia, sciatica, migraines, and even toothaches. Powdered wolfsbane was in fact used by dentists to numb aching cavities in patients before the advent of Novocaine or Lidocaine. Fortunately, a trip to the dentist these days does not rely on such ancient painkillers. However, since I have recently just had my wisdom teeth out, I don't know which painkiller I would rather have. Although aconite alkaloids do have anaesthetic properties, the margin of error between numbing pain and killing the patient was very narrow. In 1880, one doctor prescribed aconite drops to a young boy. Shortly after taking the medicine, the boy became extremely ill with chills and convulsions. The boy's mother promptly returned to the doctor, accusing him and his prescription of harming her son. Incensed that anyone, particularly a woman, would dare question his skills, he took a dose from the boy's medicine bottle to demonstrate that it was perfectly safe. Five hours later, the good doctor was dead from aconite poisoning. Where most doctors were content simply to prescribe aconite as a painkiller, one doctor and professor became increasingly concerned about the use of aconite as a poison. Though his interest was purely academic, one of his students would put the theory into practice. Robert Christian was a professor of medicine at the University of Edinburgh for more than 50 years, eventually serving as president of the Royal College of Physicians at Edinburgh 
If you're not aware, the University of Edinburgh was a real driving force in medicine. Burke and Hare were one of the most prolific people for offering that university cadavers at one time. And they were such a leading force that they always wanted to be the first things and the first place to prove anything. During Christiansen's time at Edinburgh, he became fascinated by poisonings and toxology, writing a huge popular textbook called A Treatise on Poisoning, which ran to four editions. His interests also led him to medical jurisprudence, and he often called upon as an expert witness for the prosecution in murder cases. During one particular trial, he was being cross-examined on the case of detecting poisons in a dead body. Christiansen turned to the judge and said, My lord, there is but one deadly agent of this kind, which we cannot satisfactorily chase in the human body after death. And that is, the judge at once interrupted him. Stop, stop, Mr. Christiansen, please, the judge cried. It is much better that the public should not know of it. In a subsequent lecture to the Edinburgh medical students, Christiansen revealed that what he had been about to say before the judge interrupted him was the perfect undetectable poison was aconite. Several of the renowned doctor's students would later report that there was one member of the class who was exceptionally diligent in taking notes when Christiansen was discussing aconite. And I will mention this pupil shortly. In the 19th century, one man went on a killing spree right out of a Christie mystery. As he worked through his way, through his in-law's family to get his hands on their inheritance. In 1852, George Lampson was born in New York to clergyman William Lampson and his wife, Julia. While George was still young, the family sailed across the Atlantic to live in England. George was always bright and at age 18, he enrolled as a medical student in the prestigious University of Edinburgh. After graduating, the young Dr. Lampson served as an army surgeon during the various wars that ravaged Eastern Europe and the Balkans at the end of the 19th century. For eight years, Lampson appeared to serve with distinction, earning the Legion of Honour for his work in the Franco-Prussian War and the first of many decorations. Upon returning to England, a chest full of medals was not the only thing that Lampson brought back with him. He also returned with a secret opioid addiction. In 1878, on the Isle of Wight, a small island off the southern coast of Britain, much favoured by Queen Victoria, Dr Lampson married a Welsh girl by the name of Kate George John. Kate was 25-year-old orphan daughter of wealthy linen merchant, who upon marriage was entitled to claim her portion of her parents' legacy, a legacy that under Victoria law automatically became her husband's. Kate was one of four siblings who shared equally the inheritance from their parents. Kate's sister had married and acquired her share of the previous year. There were also two brothers, Hubert and Percy, but as they were still minors, their shares of the inheritance were married, managed for them by a trust. 
In classic Tontine arrangement, if any siblings were to die before the marriage or before reaching age of majority at 21, his or her share of the wealth would be equally distributed among the remaining siblings. In 1880, using some of the money left from Kate's inheritance, Lamson purchased a medical practice in the seaside town of Bournemouth. Recent research conducted at Bournemouth University has revealed that the town was well favoured by upper-class drug addicts as a quiet place to feed their addiction. Records from Parr's Pharmacy, just a few yards from Lamson's home, showed that it regularly dispensed morphine to hotel visitors. At first, Lamson was able to conceal his addiction, becoming a pillar of the community and even obtaining a commission in the first Bournemouth and Hampshire Artillery Volunteers based on his distinguished military career. But despite his apparently successful medical practice, Lamson's drug addiction was eating into his assets. He was running up huge debts as he strove to maintain his wealthy lifestyle. His landlord was left £40, almost 5000 or nearly $7,000 today, out of pocket for unpaid rent, and he was just one of the many. Struggling to feed his addiction, Lamson pawned his watch and medical instruments to gain cash. He tried to borrow money from acquaintances to obtain cash advantages on cheques that would always bounce. Eventually, the Bournemouth Baths stopped honouring any of his cheques, leaving a trail of money owed to porters, accountants, wine merchants and even strangers. Desperate for money, his mind addled by the morphine addiction, Lamson turned his thoughts to his in-law's inheritance. What Lamson desperately needed was for his brother-in-laws to die. In June 1879, Lamson seemed to receive some cooperation in this area as Hubert died suddenly and unexpectedly learning, leaving his share of inheritance, some £3,000 or £350,000, about $489,000 today, to be split equally between the remaining siblings. The surviving brother-in-law, Percy Malcolm John, was 19 years old and suffered a severe convulture of the spine, forcing him to use a wheelchair or be carried. Although he had no use of his legs, his upper body was fine, and he was genuinely in good health. Money from his parents will allow Percy to attend a school at Blenheim House in Wimbledon, London. Percy was getting precociously close to the age of 21, in which he could avoid Tontine altogether. However, if Percy were to die unexpectedly before his majority, his £3,000 would be equally distributed between his two sisters, meaning that Lamson would have immediate access to £1,500, an amount that would go a long way to solving his financial problems. This realisation on Lamson's part sealed Percy's fate. On the evening of December 3rd, 1881, Lampson arrived at Percy's boarding school. As he was awaiting in the dining room for Percy to be brought up the stairs, Lampson took out a Dundee cake, a traditional Scottish fruit cake he had brought with him, and started slicing it. The school headmaster, Mr Bedbrook, joined Percy as his guest and offered tea and sherry to go along with the cake. Lampson 
accepted a glass of sherry, but Mama said that he always took a little sugar with it to counteract the effects. No doubt, Benbrook thought this odd, but being the consummate host, the headmaster called for the matron to bring some sugar from the kitchen to sweeten Lamson's drink. During the conversation, Lamson broached the topic of a new kind of gelatin capsule that he had acquired that could be filled with all manner of medications that would be perfect for giving bitter medicine to pupils at schools. To prove his point, Lamson filled the capsule with some of the sugar, put the two halves together and gave it to Percy, saying, Here, Percy, you're a good pill taker. Take this and show Mr. Bedbrook how easy it can be swallowed. As soon as Percy had swallowed the pill, Lamson begged his leave, announcing that he had a train to catch. As Bedroom escorted Lamson to the school's entrance, Lamson noted that, in his professional opinion, he did not think Percy would live much longer. The headmaster was considerably surprised, as he thought Percy looked quite healthy. Minutes after Lamson's departure, though, Percy began to complain of heartburn. He was carried to his bed where his illness intensified. An hour later, Percy was found laying on the floor, retching up black fluid. Two doctors were called, but both were at a loss to explain the boy's symptoms. At 11.30pm, after hours of torment and agony, Percy finally lost consciousness and died. Suspicion promptly fell on Lamson, who strongly protested his innocence, and an autopsy of Percy's body was ordered, but there were no obvious signs to what had caused the youth's demise. Convinced that a plant alkaloid had been employed, the police solicited the assistance of Dr Thomas Stevenson, an expert in alkaloid poisoning who was based at London University. At the time, chemical tests for alkaloids were very crude and not very sensitive, but Dr. Stevenson had a party trick, and it was his ability to detect and identify alkaloids by taste. During his career, Stevenson had collected some 80 different alkaloids in his laboratory and delighted in challenging his colleagues to identify the compounds through chemical tests faster than he could identify them by taste. And Stevenson always won the challenges. While detecting plant alkaloids by taste alone is impressive and of a strange hobby, Stevenson was able to use to was able to taste the alkaloids against a background of various bodily fluids, and so extracts from Percy's vomit, stomach contents, and urine were each in turn placed upon the cutting edge of the nineteenth-century chemical analyzer's tongue. I find that really disgusting. With all the expertise, he was also in the field for where wine was tasted. Stevenson had a really good tasting tongue. Stevenson started tasting extracts from Percy's stomach contents placed on his tongue produced a burning sensation extending down to the stomach. Stevenson's detection to his testing method was such that he could 
endured the symptoms for almost seven hours before they slowly wore off. Stevenson confirmed his conclusions by injecting a sample of Percy's urine underneath the skin of a mouse, with the resultant death of the mouse within 30 minutes. As a control, more mice were injected with the solution of prepared aconite, and those mice dying with the same symptoms as those observed in the mice injured with Percy's urine. The only conclusion that could now be reached was that Percy's death was the result of aconite poisoning. Lampson was arrested and tried for Percy's murder at the Old Bailey in February 1882. Lampson, who entered a plea of not guilty, was terrified by Montague Williams, who was quick to point out that none of the doctors or chemists involved had ever come across a case by aconite poisoning before, and therefore there was no poison to definitively argue that Percy had indeed died from aconite poisoning. And regardless of whether any aconite was the cause, no one had actually seen Lampson administering a fatal dose of poison to his brother-in-law. The defence also attempted to cast doubt on Professor Stevenson's tasting of the aconite extracts from Percy's organs. Francesco Salemi, Professor of Medicine just a Prudus at the University of Bologna, had argued that poisonous alkaloids were naturally produced in the stomach of those who had died from natural causes through a process of putrefaction. These cadaveric alkaloids, which Salemi called protonomies from the Greek word for corpse, could easily be what Stevenson had detected. The prosecution led by Solicitor General Poland brought Professor Stevenson back to testify and he was clearly impressed the jury with his master of his professionalism. When he asked if cadaveric alkaloids could have been what he had found in Percy samples, he stated that the issue of cadaveric alkaloids was still a matter of dispute among experts, and that while some might mimic the effects of plant alkaloids, he was unaware of any that mimicked aconite. In any case, Poland essentially destroyed the defence's notion of putrefaction alkaloids by pointing out that Percy's body had not yet started to decay when samples were taken and preserved. Additional evidence against Lamson was brought by the pharmacist who sold him the aconite and remembered the purchase clearly. At six o'clock on the last day of the trial, the jury deliberated for a mere 30 minutes before arriving at a guilty verdict. When Lampson was asked if he had anything else to say in response to the verdict, he replied, merely to protest my innocence before God. The judge stated that it would serve no good end if I were to recapitulate the harrowing details of your cruel, base and treacherous crime. I entreat you to prepare to meet Almighty God. His execution by hanging was set for April 4th, before the date arrived, an intervention came from America. It was claimed that insanity ran in the Lampson's family, a grandmother and other family members having been held at various times at Bloomingdale Asylum for the insane in New York, and therefore Lampson could not be held entirely responsible for his crime. However, his news served to only delay the inevitable. No insanity plea had been entered during the trial, so the sentence stood. Friday morning, April 28, 1882, was a heavy and overcast at Wandsworth Prison. 
Lamson rose at his usual time to breakfast of coffee, eggs and toast. At 8.45, a light rain started to form and Lampson was led to the scaffold. It is certainly disconcerting that Dr. Lampson was more afraid of facing up to his deaths and his morphine addition than he was of murder and the hangman's noose. Lampson's father wrote a letter to London newspapers stating that he would have been happy to cover all of his son's deaths had he only have asked. In prison, Lampson was forced to give up his morphine addition and for four days before his execution, in a moment of mental clarity, he confessed to Percy's murder. Finally, the question of why Lampson chose aconite of his weapon was revealed. A key piece of evidence at Lampson's trial was a notebook in which he had carefully written down the symptoms of aconite poisoning and the fact that it was undetectable. That it is undetectable according to the Edinburgh professor Robert Christensen in the early 1870s when a young medical student by the name of George Henry Lampson was diligently taking notes on the professor's description of aconite. Aconite was not to remain undetectable for long and had Lampson kept up the scientific literature he might have chosen a different poison or even abjured murder altogether. Soon after ingesting aconite, the stomach and the intestines become unsettled as the body tries to rid itself of the deadly poison. Nausea, vomiting and stomach cramps and diarrhoea all occur quickly in an attempt to physically remove the aconite. Usually these attempts are in vain, as some of the poison has already been absorbed into the bloodstream, carried throughout the body in the bloods. Aconite's first deadly symptoms appear. Starting with the feeling of pins and needles around the mouth, numbness gradually spreads over the entire face. Often a burning sensation is felt on the tongue, as if a red hot poker is slowly being drawn over it. Your eyes lose focus, vision begins to blur and fade, even to the point of blindness. Normal sensations of the arms and legs disappear, almost as if they have been cut off from the rest of the body. As aconite works its way through the body, the skin grows cold and clammy. Laboured breathing and a sense of dread overwhelms the victim. Blood returning to the heart carries the poison with it, initially causing palpitations, but then causing the heart to beat faster and faster until the heartbeat becomes erratic and finally ceases altogether. The effects of aconite poisoning are seen quickly and usually within minutes of ingestion and seldom delayed longer than an hour. Once a lethal dose has been ingested, The only remaining question is whether the death will result from paralysis of the heart or asphyxiation due to the paralysis of the diaphragm. As little as one or two milligrams, an amount roughly equivalent to 100 to 200 grains of salt, is fatal. Even with hospital support, 95% of patients will succumb and die. This is a very serious poison and is aptly named the Queen of Poisons. 
Aconite binds to a particular protein found in the membranes of nerve and heart cells. Both nerve and heart cells need small electrical currents to work properly, and aconite wrecks it, wreaks its havoc by interfering with this bioelectricity. In contrast to the continuous flow of electricity down wire, nerves work by sending waves of signal down their length. Once a signal has washed down the nerve, the nerve must be reset before it can again conduct the signal. Similarly, after every heartbeat, the heart must momentarily rest and reset before starting another contraction to send blood around the body. If either the nerves or the heart are unable to reset properly, problems quickly follow. It is this resetting process that the aconite pre prevents from happening. When a nerve fires, its sodium and potassium ions swap places. Sodium ions, which are normally sparse in the cell, flow into the nerve, prompting potassium ions to exit or be removed from the nerve. This exchange of sodium going in and potassium leaving is called depolarization and occurs as a nerve is signaling. Sodium doesn't just leak into the nerve cell. It enters in a carefully controlled fashion through specialized proteins in the membrane called sodium channels. Surprise, surprise. To reset the nerve, a new signal can be sent. A process of repolarization must happen in which the sodium channel closes to stop the inflow of the sodium into the cell and any sodium that has come in must be expelled. In the muscle cells of the heart, an influx of sodium triggers the contraction of the muscle. And when the muscle cells of the heart contract in a coordinated fashion, we have a heartbeat. Imagine now that something prevents these sodium channels from ever closing. This is exactly what aconite does. Aconite stops the nerves and the heart muscle cells from repolarizing and resetting by binding tightly to the sodium channels like a doorstop, blocking the door from shutting. At first, the sodium channels open and the sodium floods into the cell, causing the nerve signal to fire or the heart cell to contract as usual. But after a few milliseconds, the sodium channel should close to reset the system. But aconite locks the channel open. Nerve or muscle cells try to get the sodium ions back out using sodium pumps. But the channels are wide open and it's like trying to empty a bathtub with the faucet still running. However, if aconite is so deadly, why would it have ever been used medicinally? Not all nerves send information from the brain out to the body. As some nerves are sensory and send information from our senses back to our brain. And this group includes your pain nerves. Although these nerves are incredibly useful in helping prevent damage to the body, long-term pain is very unpleasant. This is what we would call chronic pain. Since sensory nerves also rely on sodium flow and depolarization, preventing the closure of sodium channels in these nerves should eliminate the pain signals. And this is the basis for herbal pain remedies. So based on aconite, Unfortunately, the tiny amount of aconite needed to curb the pain sensation is perilously close to lethal levels. 
and several instances of aconite poisoning have been attributed to the use of herbal remedies that undergo no quality control or purity assessment. After George Lamson's execution, aconite and its poisonous properties slowly faded away from the public's mind. But the echoes of murder and aconite were to reverberate through the chambers of the old Bailey Courthouse again, almost 130 years later. Lakavir Kaur Singh was born in Amistra, India, before moving to London, borough of Southwark. In an arranged and loveless marriage with three children, she felt trapped. Mrs Singh decided that what she needed was some excitement in her life, and that soon arrived in the form of Mr Lakvinda Lucky Chima, a relation of the Singhs by marriage, who moved into their home as a lodger and eventually became Mrs Singh's lover. Spending more than a second in thought, one would realise that going by the nickname Lucky was just tempting fate. After living with the Sings for several years, Lucky finally moved out of a house of his own and started taking in lodgers to help pay the bills. This had little effect on Mrs Singh as she continued to act the part of devoted mistress by visiting Lucky's house every day to clean, cook and do his laundry. The relationship began to unravel in 2008 when Lucky Chima was introduced to 21-year-old Gruchikur Guttar, an immigrant to the UK. Kujur was introduced to Lucky as a potential bride. From that point on, Lucky started, Lucky started to run out of luck. Barely a month later, Lucky and Kujur announced their engagement, carefully timed for when Mrs Singh was in India visiting relatives. Despite being thousands of miles away, Singh learned of the engagement. Furious and distraught, she bombarded Lucky with text messages, begging him to return to her. In one text, she said, Did you not think before breaking my heart that my heart would now be useless to anyone? She also tried to persuade Lucky that his young fiance only wanted to marry him for a secure legal residency in Britain. When none of these approaches work, Singh decided that she couldn't have Lucky, then no one can. One visit to a herbal remedy store later, Singh left with a packet of Actarium ferox, or Indian aconite powder, which she smuggled back into England. Back home, Mrs Singh kept a close watch on Lucky's house, noting when he left and when he returned. With this knowledge in hand, on January 27, 2009, Mrs Singh patiently waited until Lucky left the house and drove off. Using the keys Lucky had given to her long ago, Mrs Singh entered the house. Briefly waving to one of Lucky's lodgers, she went directly into the kitchen. Inside the refrigerator was a large Tupperware container holding some chicken curry. Reaching into the fridge, she opened the plastic tub and carefully sprinkled in the deadly aconite. When Lucky returned home, the lodger told him that Mrs Singh had visited while he was out. Lucky thanked him for the information, determining that he really needed to change the locks on the front door in case Mrs Singh ever decided to perpetrate any retribution. If one were to look for a picture, to go along with the phrase, locking the stable door after the horse has already bolted. 
a photograph of Lucky Chima and a Tupperware ball of curry would not be inappropriate. At 10pm that night, Lucky and his fiance sat down for a late dinner, looking into the warmed curry from the fridge, discussing their upcoming wedding, which was to take place in two weeks on Valentine's Day. Lucky took a second helping of food, but not much later, both Lucky and Jurette felt unwell, complaining of severe stomach cramps. Lucky called the emergency services and in a trembling voice told the operator that he thought that someone had poisoned their food. Deciding that the ambulance would take too long to arrive, Lucky got his two nephews to take him to the hospital. Partially paralysed and losing his sight, Lucky was helped into the car and taken to the emergency room. The initial symptoms recorded by the doctors, including feeling of pins and needles around his mouth, loss of vision, muscle weakness, sweating, abdominal pain, and profuse vomiting. Despite being treated with antiemetics, both patients continued vomiting. Within an hour of admission, Lucky became very agitated. His heart started racing. Machines monitoring Lucky's heart showed massive changes in electrical activity, causing it to contract erratically and, importantly, inefficiently. Lucky's blood pressure plummeted and he started convulsing and within two hours of admission, he was dead. The doctors had no clue what had poisoned Lucky, but started to to take the steps to wash out any drug from Jurette's stomach. She was placed in a medically induced coma for three days and likely survived only because she'd eaten less of the curry than her late fiance. The rapid onset and fatality of the poison alarmed the hospital staff and police who sealed off Mr Chima and Mrs Singh's homes. Suspecting an airborne or chemical threat, in Singh's coat, police found a plastic bag containing a brown powder, which she claimed was just a herbal remedy. At first, forensic chemists were unsure of the identity of the powder, but whatever it was, the chemical was also present in the curry and Lockie's vomit. Suspicion fell on an alkaloid from Aconian ferox, which grows in the Himalayas. But forensic chemists couldn't just fly off to the Himalayas for samples to see if their hunch was correct. Fortunately, samples of aferox were available much closer to home in the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew. When samples from the Kew Gardens were compared with Mrs Singh's brown powder, they were found to be identical. Lucky's death was due to the poisoning with aconite from Aconium ferox. Lakvia Singh was tried at the Old Bailey for the murder of Lucky Chima by poisoning and the attempted murder of Gurdjit Kuchor. Great public interest surrounded the trial. Since the last trial in Britain for aconite poisoning had been 330 years earlier when George Henry Lamson had been convicted in 1882. Like Lamson, the jury found Mrs. Singh guilty of the mucker, the murder of Lucky Chima, and guilty of causing Miss True grievous bodily harm with intent. In sentencing, the judge said, You set about cold and calculating revenge. You knew how deadly aconite was and how agonising the effects would be. Mrs Singh received a life sentence with 23 minimum term. 
some 130 years apart, two murderers, both using aconite, and both tried in the same courthouse, where each was found guilty. Fortunately for Mrs Singh, by the time that she was convicted, hanging was no longer a sentencing option. In the deadly cat and mouse game between Poisoner and Toxologist, the Poisoner certainly has the upper hand at the beginning of the 19th century, but certainly not today. Poisons, including plant poisons, were readily available, and even if someone was suspected of murder by poison, forensic evidence as a prosecutional tool was in its infancy. However, as the 20th century rose on the horizon, chemists and toxologists became more sophisticated in their abilities to a point where killers, who might have gotten away with murder a few years before, were finding their poisons identified in their victims. Today's modern toxology labs filled with cutting-edge detection equipment mean that no substance is ultimately undetectable. What is the difference, Potter, between monkshood and wolfsbane? One of my favourite phrases in Harry Potter. Thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. I hope that you found this episode interesting. This, especially the tale of Mrs Singh's curry, was one of the first cases that I saw on poisoning and it really did spark my interest and I really found it interesting how both Mrs Singh and Lumsden were tried in the same court and both were found guilty. Next week or next time we will look at an equally lethal plant poison but it kills in a completely different way by interfering with a critical activity in every one of the 30 trillion cells in our body. I can't wait for you to join me on that one. If you do have any suggestions or any updates that you would like to let me know of or anything at all, any comments, please let me know at macabreformortals at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening and wherever you are in the world, please stay safe.